You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Network. I have uh, Carl Rendish or Anders Ericsson. Uh, he's the author of a book called Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, uh, co-authored book. Um, Carl seems to be involved in uh, researching for you know, at least 30 years, uh, the general nature and acquisition of expertise. How do people become experts? Is talent a real thing? You know, are there such things as prodigies, etc.? He explores a lot of that in the book but I wanted to have him on so we could talk about some uh, ancillary topics that may or may not be in the book and just give it more richness. So, Andish, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Looking forward to uh, talking to you. Yeah, so um, one thing that seems to get a lot of people's attention, again, my attention is uh, your thoughts on talent or, uh, you know, someone that's just naturally gifted at a particular activity, you know, without giving away too much. Like, what, what are your thoughts there and what has your experience shown you? Is that a real thing? Well, you know, I think I grew up in a family where at least my, particularly my father was always reassuring me that, you know, when I noticed people here who seemed to be exceptionally able that, you know, from his experience, you know, there there was sort of a process and, and, and there was something that you could really learn from these people who are very successful. So it's not, you know, like they were just innately given things that other people would never be able to acquire. So uh, I guess that's a little bit what I've been doing research on here now for the last 30, 40 years. It's kind of trying to understand, you know, how very high levels of performance uh, is attained and to what extent we really need to assume that individuals are fundamentally different. And therefore, we need to be very concerned here about you know, selecting people for and giving them a chance here to uh, basically uh, succeed. Because obviously, if we're selecting people, uh, you would like to have a scientific rationale here for why you would let some people get, you know, some of the limited resources and not others. Well, so um, when someone's very young and someone will say, oh, they're a prodigy at this or they're talented at that, is it just that have you found it's just because that person likes that particular activity and therefore they're predisposed and self-motivated to practice it more than other people would? Well, I think there's like uh, a couple of things that I think are important. That once you look at uh, very young children or, uh, you know, who perform now at, at a level that may be outside basically an, an average adult, uh, I guess one thing is clear is that they're not exhibiting at that point any kind of performance that 
would be competitive with basically very high levels of performance in whatever domain you're talking about. And it also turns out that you see that kind of prodigious or you know, kind of very high level performance in young individuals, it's sort of restricted to certain types of domains. So for example, you don't see any authors who produced basically books of any value you know, when they were six or seven years old. And the same thing with the, and I think that even includes uh, sort of Mozart and his uh, music compositions that when you look at music compositions that Mozart did, that wasn't kind of influenced now by the copying that his father had him do of other musical pieces, but something that was genuinely his, he was substantially older when he produced sort of important music. Um, and the same thing is essentially true, you know, with musical prodigies who are playing various instruments. And there's kind of an interesting claim now that those individuals who have that early prodigious development are typically very dependent on their parents and teachers. So they're in some ways, you know, being guided by uh, these adults, and then they get to a point here when you reach adulthood, when you know most other individuals, you know, go off on on the on their own and find potentially now a path that earns them sort of a place in history in their domain. Uh, these prodigies, once they get to that point, haven't really been prepared for that independence, and it seems that you know they are, if anything much less likely than other individuals to kind of really be successful in their domains. Okay. Um, what, what constitutes a successful transition from, you know, uh, a child that is practicing certain activity and then they turn into an adult? Like, you know, the success stories, I'm sure, are probably matched or outmatched by the, the stories of people that were really good at something when they were a kid, but they didn't uh, continue to foster it and then it fell away. So any hallmarks of continued success into adulthood and beyond into a professional career? Well, you know, I think the standards is uh, that you would be able to find kind of a, a professional position that allows you now to, you know, focus in on whatever it is that you're doing. If you're writing or you're playing music or, you know, acting or whatever. But I think what we're particularly interested in is those individuals who among those who are professionals who tend to actually go and make kind of a unique contribution that in some ways places them in the history of that domain because they've now added something significant to the domain that individuals are coming after them will, you know, basically absorb and, and try to uh, uh, internalize. So um, at the highest levels of performance now, moving forward into the people that are world-class at what they do. I've noticed, and just looking at a few examples, like um, I saw this one guy, he's the fastest quick draw or the most accurate quick draw in the world. But it's said in the program that he still shoots like 40,000 rounds a year. And it seems like even at the highest levels of performance, the people are at the top of a very steeply sloped mountain that they could easily fall off of any time without a lot of practice. Is that your observation? You know, I, I think it may depend a little bit on the domain, but I think anything that has a very significant kind of perceptual motor component or a motor component, 
And, and I think uh, you see that when somebody has an injury, that very often it takes a long time and sometimes they're not able to come back, you know, from that injury. And I think it has to do with that, at least the way I view it, is that you actually are increasing the amount of training. So you're actually kind of getting your body to be sort of adapted now to this kind of more intense training that if you stop doing it, it's almost like you're reversing back to the normal. So there's really no way for you to kind of just, you know, preserve what you have without actually that sustained training. And and one example that I guess is pretty clear is, you know, the early astronauts, when they went up, you know, in space, you know, they were obviously selected to be athletically outstanding. And then when they actually came back after these missions in the beginning, you know, they more or less fainted because their body, the the muscle system had more or less, you know, been able to go back to a minimal activity level. And the body is sort of adapting to the demand. And if you don't have gravity, then there's a lot of things that basically will not stimulate you. And since that point, they've now established ways here in which you can use uh, various, you know, training equipment to induce that resistance that would allow you now to engage in motor activities that would allow you to kind of maintain your fitness, even when there's really no gravity. Have you studied savants, you know, whether by accident uh, or idiot savants, you know, that appear to be born that way? And, and if so, what have you learned from looking at them? I, I personally have not. Uh, I, I think I've had interaction with a few prodigies, but um, I think I had a little bit of an issue once I saw the research that other people did, that these savants were kind of admired by the parents and all sorts of people. And I didn't really feel comfortable going in there and more or less, you know, kind of showing and, and I think that's what the, the people who actually did the research did, you know, that you can explain sort of why they're able to do these things uh, by kind of drawing on kind of the, uh, the, the sort of environment and basically the kind of activities that these individuals have engaged in. And, and the fact that it's often very kind of specialized towards a single activity you know, whereas everything else uh, in, in some of these individuals is, is sort of extremely limited. So in a sense here, coming in here and more or less announcing that this individual isn't all that special would seem to me to be associated here with negative consequences for the individual. And, uh, and that's at least one reason why I've avoided uh, kind of getting involved in any research uh, basically studying them but you know there's enough other people who've done that and 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 i guess i'm convinced here from what i've seen that that these individuals you know it's not like they're inexplicable it's more uh, the fact that they were led to a given path and and sometimes i think when it comes to motivation and basically individuals getting really uh excited about certain types of activities and then getting maybe teachers and others helping them refining what they can do. I think that explains, at least in my mind, the vast majority of these 
uh, individual differences that I've read about. So is there natural ability? And if so, like, how would you characterize it? How much does it play a role and what does it look like? Well, uh, I, I guess I would argue here that when it comes to body size, and that's important in a lot of sports, I guess in basketball, if you're not tall enough, it's going to be awfully hard for you to be successful. And, and the reverse is true, I guess, in gymnastics, where the shorter you are, the more likely you are basically of being successful in that domain. And, and then there's a whole range of other kind of domains where it may be not as striking. But I guess my view has been, I want to see the evidence that compels me to basically agree here that only individuals with such and such kind of childhood ability, or I guess in these days, you know, people are looking for genes that may be predictive here of future success. And, and I guess I have to say that accepting here the body size uh, variables, I haven't really seen any compelling evidence that some individuals are inherently going to be at an extreme disadvantage in a domain, you know, assuming now that they're otherwise normal. I mean, obviously, if you're blind or deaf or whatever, I mean, that I think is a different story. But if you're looking at people who don't seem to be abnormally handicapped by some uh, obvious uh, feature, I think we're still looking, you know, to find out what and if so, basically identify those aspects that are really highly predictive. And, and I think, you know, 20 years of searching for genes, and I think most people would agree here that Nobody has found any genes, individual genes, that are highly predictive. Uh, so basically, it's a big question here whether, in fact, people will ever find them. But then again, you know, I mean, it's a matter of science. If somebody can now show that certain genes provide development of certain types of, you know, basically uh, neurological functionality that other people can't, well, then... Obviously, we're going to have to add that to that list of body size uh, attributes. So most of um, success in any particular field is practice. Now we turn to the question of, you know, how do you practice to be effective? How do you practice to get into the upper echelon? It's, it's probably not just tons of practice, but what are some of the nuances of practice to make it more effective for somebody? And I think that is, you know, one of the things that I would like to emphasize, given that you know, uh, basically, a lot of people have heard of the 10,000 hour rule. And I think it's kind of interesting that, I mean, people are looking for, in some ways, relatively simple uh, facts and, and, and basically things that they can really understand. And what we demonstrated, and I think this is what Gladwell misinterpreted us saying, it's not you know, just putting in a lot of hours where you try to get better. It's really a, a particular type of training that we refer to as purposeful or deliberate practice, where you actually, ideally with the help of a teacher that have helped other individuals, you know, develop to the level that you want to attain, uh, that basically they can identify a sequence of kind of goals that you can set for yourself that would be attainable and essentially 
eventually allow you then to acquire the correct fundamentals of the skills so you can kind of keep developing and refining your performance uh, until you reach sort of the kind of highest levels where in a sense here, I mean, that's a boundary of what anybody knows uh, uh, that can advise other people of how to get to. So what are some ways that someone can practice more effectively? Any um, elements of their training that you can just talk about? Well, you know, I think uh, the key here, and I guess a simple uh, uh, kind of recommendation would be identify a teacher that has actually uh, successfully trained other people to reach whatever level that you want to get to. Uh, I think we also see that in many of these domains involving, you know, kind of motor activities like playing a musical instrument and stuff like that. It seems to be very key here that when you start basically working with the instrument, that you actually start doing it with the correct fundamentals. Uh, because if you start by yourself, uh, very often then you will actually end up doing something and to basically do the more simpler things in the domain, there may be a lot of different ways to do it. But as you kind of reach now at the very highest levels, then it's almost like you have to have the right kind of structure that would actually support you in going you know, beyond to acquire now the most challenging skills. And that's where I think a teacher is going to be critical because they would know how you would need to do it uh, because the individual themselves wouldn't have an idea and often their parents wouldn't either. So it's almost like you need that external advice uh, to kind of help you uh, determine now what would be an appropriate goal here for training this week. And then once you've done that, you know, what, what is the sort of the next goal. Now, one of the things that we run into when we're talking about people who have regular jobs is that it's sometimes hard to even find a good measure of their current performance and even specifying now what is it that they should be changing in order to be more uh, basically successful. And uh, we've been sort of looking at, instead of maybe trying to, define that overall, it seems easier to kind of define what would be kind of a, a very valuable contribution if you're in a committee or something like that. So you're actually working now with your colleagues in order to actually have a very productive meeting. And that seems to be something that we can more easily, uh, you know, help individuals develop. Other things is sort of giving a public presentation uh, that basically is effective in terms of whatever the goals are for that particular kind of presentation. And then you can basically enumerate all sorts of more particular skills uh, where I guess we have much more knowledge here about how to reliably assess the current performance and also now recommend now what are the kind of changes and the types of training that would be effective to help you improve. I'm sure having a coach should be fantastic. You know, I've had coaches in many areas, but I know some people just because of time or money or availability, they, they you know they have to rely on self-learning. Any recommendations for someone that's you know all they can do is just learn on their own for now. They don't have the resources to do anything else. What any you know how would they make it more effective than than just 
you know, researching stuff in general? Well, uh, I would say that uh, there are probably, uh, and, and again, it probably depends on what the activity is that you're looking at, but I've been finding more and more books of individuals that have kind of documented their path to their current, you know, successful level of performance. And, and just to mention a couple of examples here, uh, I think there are now a, at least a couple of books here on if you want to be a stand-up comedian, you know, what were the things that those individuals are currently or, or have been very successful? So what was their path, you know, and, and how did they find kind of training activities? And, and it seems like what you do is you try to find an environment here where you can get feedback. So by going to a sort of a relatively low-level club where you perform for free, uh, you can basically see the audience reaction and, in a sense, basically, you know, get feedback, even though you don't have a teacher. Uh, another thing that you could easily do is to videotape yourself, whatever it is that you're doing. And then actually, after you're done here with whatever task or project that you're involved in, you would take an, uh, basically looking at that video and when when people actually look at their videos when they give when they've given talks, you know they can see very easily things that you know if they were in the audience they probably would have noticed and it would have detracted here from the uh, basically success here of your presentation. So I think that idea here of of actually looking for ways here of getting feedback and and. You know, the video is one way that you can do it yourself. Uh, other things is sort of reading books and getting ideas here for things that you can do. Uh, I think also sometimes, you know, just finding other people who are equally interested in, you know, improving and then, you know, helping each other uh, would be another kind of valuable method. And again, depending on what the activity is, it may be uh, easier or more difficult. I can tell you from my personal experience, if uh, you want to interview 100 people in a given field, that helps your understanding quite a bit. That's a tip for anyone if they want to go do something like that. Right. And, and I think that just to give one example that I thought was interesting, I was talking to one of the professors here for uh, basically there is a program for uh, international students who are coming to Florida State to learn English as a second language. And I was talking to him about, you know, is there some students that were really very good? And if so, what did they do? You know, and one thing that they tend to do is that the good students, instead of actually hanging around with their friends where they can speak their first language, you know, they actually go out. So they're actually forced to basically communicate with people in English. Uh, but another one or, or a couple of the students, actually, what they did was to go to a shopping center, and then they would actually ask for directions or, or something, uh, and they would ask now the same question here to maybe 50 people that they met. So the first couple of times, you know, they would be confused and maybe have a hard time understanding, but as they understood now what people would be responding, they were then more and more able now to, you know, kind of adjust how they were interacting with these uh, people. And I thought that was sort of interesting. And I mean, other things that they would do would be to watch movies with subtitles and, and basically uh, 
so you you know basically could watch a segment and then you could watch it again with the subtitles and now kind of identify what it is that you know you could now learn uh, that you didn't know before. That's cool. I've, I've noticed if uh, you just go over something you know one more time or two more times, especially if there's been some time distance between the first time you went through it, you see it with different eyes and you get more of the topic. You know, I know no one can retain a hundred percent. You know, even if they're photographic, you still are missing certain elements of what they're experiencing. So I've learned to just, you know, again, repetition in a different way works better. If you're going faster again or slower again or, you know, with a different seed thought in your mind as to what you're looking for, those all affect, I've noticed, again, how learning happens. I, I think that's a very, you know, good observation. And one thing that I'm personally very interested in is encouraging some individuals to keep videotaping themselves so you actually would be able to see here, you know, this guy that we now admire, what did he look like when he actually only had done it for like a couple of months? And now those kinds of tapes uh, and, and that way of documenting, I know of uh, a f some parents who at least told me that they're committed at, of doing this, uh, but actually being able then to kind of watch and see people that you really admire if you can actually see that growth process, I think that's very compelling. Uh, and it may also be quite instructive if you're struggling at a particular point to see how some other people were able to overcome that particular uh, uh, challenge. Yeah, that's probably really, I mean, it's rare that people, unless they're professionals, they videotape themselves or have themselves observed, accepted by a coach, but... Um... If you can watch other people going through that process, that's really right. And and I think it's kind of interesting that some of those more famous people who maybe have these tapes, they may actually not be motivated, you know, to kind of have other people see how they more slowly improved. Then, obviously, if somebody suddenly improved, uh, which I have to say that I've been now looking for for almost you know thirty years to try to find some example of people who suddenly, you know, go from one level to the next. And, and I have basically not found it, but if we had those tapes, I guess then you could conceivably at least have much better evidence than a parent claiming here that they, you know, basically were able to do this even when they kind of started where you almost have to rely on the parents whose memory may be sort of biased. Yeah, I guess the only, you know, it's funny, the only videos I've seen of someone uh, improving over time is like when I watch an AI video and you watch the AI improve over time, but that's not a person. But it would be nice to see that, that progression of how someone improves. That would be pretty cool. you know of any repositories of that for given skills that people could watch? I, I've been talking to people about this, uh, but I don't know of of any uh, kind of really organized uh, uh system that that would be available for other people to look at but hopefully here maybe in two three five years you know there might be uh, several are there any particular skills that really attract you that you want to study more deeply or as a genre of skills like are you big into sports or are there other kinds of performance things that really capture your attention well you know i i think I'm interested in uh, kind of studying professions where improving the person's performance would in some ways be more societally valuable than perhaps improving athletes' performance. I'm, I'm 
very interested in talking to any athlete or coach, and I am interacting with uh, you know several kind of coaches and teams more generally. But I guess uh, when it comes to uh, sort of professions, surgery is actually one area where I have had maybe you know a much larger number of different types of interactions. Where, and I think everyone would agree if if we could help surgeons now have better success for their patients, you know, that would be societally really valuable in a way that if I could help a golfer get, you know, a stroke better, perhaps wouldn't have that direct impact on society. Mm, it makes sense. Um, are there any, so, so have you studied surgeons, for instance, in detail, or is there any particular area of expertise that, you know, you spend a lot of time with the practitioners of it? Uh, well, I, I, I've been working with uh, American uh, College of Surgeons and been kind of on a committee here for developing expertise. And part of that, they allowed me to shadow uh, six sort of uh, what they considered to be top surgeons. And so the surgeons would actually think out loud while I was standing behind him while he was doing the various surgeries. So and and I actually haven't you know been seeing a surgery that close before so that was very interesting and then the opportunity of talking to these uh, surgeons and I think uh, they are really interested here in in kind of that idea here of identifying surgeons that would produce now videotapes that would basically serve here as reference points for uh, you know more developing surgeons so they would be able to uh, not to see, but also having the surgeon kind of more or less give a kind of a, a dump here of what they're thinking about when they're making decisions that, you know, uh, lead to, uh, you know, better ways here of realizing uh, what they're doing in surgery. Uh, so basically, th that idea of finding a way here of externalizing all this knowledge that if the surgeons retire, it's sort of like you don't really have uh, any kind of more direct way here of, of learning from them. But if one were to develop these types of uh, resources, that would be something that uh, would be kind of more of a library type where you would be able to keep adding on to it. And then also ideally having a way here of accessing, you know, 10,000 videos in a way that if you have one issue, uh, you would be able to now, uh, you know, access the four or five that would be directly relevant to the kind of issue that you experienced in your last surgery. You know, it'd be really cool. I mean, I know it could be confusing if you did it the wrong way, but let's say like, you know, I'll pick uh, chess. You know, what if you had a, a training where you heard from like, you know, seven different grandmasters weigh in on, you know, a particular technique in chess? And then you look at another technique and again, you get like another seven. You know, I know that some people would say, well, you may get confusing info and that kind of thing, but it also might be really cool if you saw that and you saw the diversity of, you know, experts weighing in on a particular skill or a thing that you want to learn. It might give you a better idea on how to learn it. I, I think in chess, uh, there are really uh, not in terms of videos, but what they've done is to ask, basically found positions that, for some reason, uh, 
they've selected here as uh, particularly challenging, and then actually give the same position here to a number of uh, basically masters and grandmasters. And they've then verbatim written down what they have said here when they go through this process of finding the best move. So in a sense, uh, you have that information. It may be potentially more interesting you know, to see the person actually doing it. But in a sense, people have been able to draw out these search trees that these individuals have generated. Uh, so you can kind of see how similar they are. And, and I think that's one of the kind of more important findings is that uh, your chess rating is associated now with your likelihood of finding the very best move for uh, the particular position. Yeah, I just thought that might be just an interesting thing to do, you know, for a lot of different skill sets, you know, not just chess, but it's cool that they do that. I saw something new on YouTube that I think you might be interested in if you don't know about it, but uh, Wired Magazine, they'll have like a, a scientist explain a concept on five different levels. So they had one video, like it was like, a, you know, a quantum computer and the scientist explained it's like a, a seven-year-old and then, a, you know, a high schooler and then a college graduate and then like a colleague. And it was pretty cool to see the same thing explained in different facets of the thing talked about to the people of different abilities and age levels. So perhaps incorporating that into your learning somehow, either as the teacher or the student, would be pretty cool. I think that sounds terrific. Do you know if they've actually empirically assessed to what extent the various uh, individuals at the different levels would actually understand in the sense? They must have done, yeah, they must have done something because it, it goes well. It doesn't like, it, you know, you never see it fall to pieces where the, the person just doesn't understand at all. Like it seems to, it seems to be a little bit, I don't, I don't think it's scripted, but there's definitely some planning behind it. But yeah, you should get in contact with, with Wired, I'm sure they'd want to hear from you, you know, a person of your stature, and maybe you can uh, analyze what they're doing and partner with them on it. It's just a cool thought that came to mind. You know? uh, I think that is very interesting. And, and I think uh, it kind of gets at that more general kind of problem that for a beginner, having a sense here that the teacher is guiding them in the right direction. Because I've encountered, you know, music students who feel when they're actually forced now to do something that may not be the easiest way to just play this particular piece, being convinced now that they're actually investing here in something that's going to make a difference, you know, maybe several years ahead of it. And similarly with, uh, you know, basically residents uh, in surgery to actually have a grasp here of what it is that the expert is thinking about that actually now shows some of the things that they would not be thinking about when they're actually exposed to the same kind of situation in surgery. And you, that you're really sort of building up these structures that are highly correlated now with your ability to have very successful outcomes. Yeah, I've also noticed too, like, um, like my, my wife and I do ballroom dancing and we've had a number of teachers and right now we have like two different ones, you know? and. It's funny, some, one of the teachers I just seem to like learn better from, I don't know why, and then the other teacher, she learns better from. So I think it's also important to probably have like a matching of not only someone that's competent to teach you, meaning they're an expert, but the way in which they teach you jives with the way that makes sense to you. Because even if someone's a fantastic teacher, if what they're saying is gobbledygook or they just can't do it in a way that you get as the student, you know, there's, it's not going to be effective for you. 
I think that's really interesting. And, and one thing that I'm, you know, I'm kind of also teaching undergraduates here, getting more and more interested in is, what is it that a given student is actually getting out of one of my lectures? Uh, because basically, if I am going to get better, I need to kind of get feedback of how they're perceiving whatever I'm doing. So it's not in a sense, you know, their fault that they don't understand what I'm doing, you know, as a best possible teacher, I should be more aware here of the kind of difficulties that students have. And I guess if they don't understand, they may tune out totally. So basically, have your teachers, do they try to have you tell them what they were just asking you to do as a sort of a feedback loop to determine here that, you know, they've communicated accurately with you. And if they haven't, then they would, you know, maybe realize how they should be doing things differently. Yeah, they don't. I have to interpret it myself. So I just try to be like really watchful. I noticed that, you know, I know myself, like I'm very auditory, for instance. So, you know, and then in, with, with dance, like uh, one of the teachers I could tell is just more physically visual to me. So I'm able to follow what that person is doing more than the other. The other tries to use words to describe things. And the other one like shows me physically. And that works a lot better for me. But for some reason, my wife responds to the other way. So there's nothing wrong with it. But I have to be the one that figures that out as a student. Unfortunately, they, they don't, you know, most teachers I run into, they don't seem capable or even aware that they have to adapt what they're doing depending on who they're working with. But it's an interesting question if you could give her feedback about, and I don't really know, you know, how you would characterize sort of the difference. I, ideally, they should instruct you about the same thing. So you would have a sense here of what actually really worked for you. And then you would be able to tell the other teacher, you know, if you had been given information about this, then probably things would have gone much better. Oh, we used to have this joke in college, you know, does everyone understand? No? Great. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) There wasn't much patience for for any of that or help for people. Shame. It was like a relentless train that just kept going no matter if you understood or not you know but but i think basically you know that things are changing now uh so i guess in medicine i see you know that people are much more interested in understanding what the patient views as their problems uh because that ends up being very critical if you have somebody with uh, basically uh you know a condition like diabetes or something so they need to change something about their daily habits. Uh, What people have shown is that if you understand what the patient views as their problems, you as a doctor would be able to kind of explain to them, you know, why it's worthwhile for them to do this and what they would expect. Uh, And by basically actually having the patients understand now why, you know, this kind of effort of changing their habits is worthwhile, they need to uh, understand it. And if they do, uh, they're much more likely now to basically show the positive response here to, uh, you know, your uh, meeting with them. And, and once you start using that, the criteria here of measuring people in terms of how good they are in terms of the outcomes that their patients have, then I think doctors are getting more interested in basically what they need to do in order to have that, you know, excel on that outcome, a variable. 
Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. You know, let's say you're, I don't know, 85 years old and you have a certain kind of cancer and the doctor traditionally would say, all right, we got to throw everything at this to, you know, to get you free of it. And the person says, well, you know, I just want to not uh, be in pain, but other than that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm close to the end and I'm not looking for any like great changes. So I don't really need all this therapy. I, I just want to do this because I don't need all the things you're proposing. And, you know, there's no back and forth and interaction on what's necessary and why and what the person wants. And right. It wouldn't be good for them. Well, I, I think, you know, we're, you're pointing here to something that really could make a positive because I think you're going to hopefully change the world here, you know, piece by piece. But the more you think about the positive consequences of your efforts to do things better and how that might actually make a difference to other people, I think that's a very important motivator for at least many of the people that I have interacted with. Yeah, and, uh, so, so the last area I want to ask you about is environment. Like, for instance, again, I, I can only use myself right now for reference, but you know, I guess I'm I'm sensitive to my work environment. If I'm sitting in an uncomfortable chair or if it's too hot or too cold or too dark or whatever it is, it, it's hard for me to work. So in terms of any skill, any types of performance, have you looked at the environment that the person is in mentally, physically, et cetera, and how that's affected their performance in a given skill? Well, the way I think uh, I would uh, say that we've looked at it is to see here how people who are very successful invest a lot of time in designing, you know, sort of an environment for them that is going to be supportive for their project of, you know, basically excelling. And one thing that I was struck by when we work with these uh, violinists in Berlin was that the best violinists, they were very aware of the fact that they really couldn't date sort of, quote, normal individuals, because these normal individuals had no understanding for them when they wanted to go home at 11 so they could have a good night's sleep so they could actually work now with full concentration the following morning. So what they ended up doing was actually now looking for individuals who were equally committed. They wouldn't necessarily have to be musicians. They could be interested in science or they could, you know, acting or whatever. But basically that idea here that your social environment, uh, if you put in effort of actually establishing now uh, support systems and, and, and relations that you're trying to minimize now the kind of problem that you're having, uh, when it comes to the actual sort of way that you work, uh, I remember uh, one year I was kind of collecting photographs of the environment that famous writers had generated where they did all their writing. And I thought that was sort of interesting because it's almost like, you know, they were generating a little bit of a temple of sorts that in some ways, uh, once they sat down, you know, that would be maximally conducive for them to sort of be working on their uh, craft. And, uh, but I, I think that idea that, you know, once you're in that chair, then that's what you're doing. I think a lot of people, you know, are not actually using uh, a particular room as dedicated for that one activity. But I think if you do, uh, in the same way that I've heard that people who want to fall asleep easily, you know, they are only in the bed when they want to sleep. 
they're not basically doing all sorts of other things uh, in that bed environment that that somehow uh, you know would potentially interfere here with their ability here to fall asleep rapidly. Yeah, so I guess you know, like I'm just if, if a young person came to you and said, "Amnesh, I want to be great at X," you know, in in very brief terms, how can I do it? And I imagine you're saying like, you know, you need an environment for success and you need deliberate practice. And I mean, but, but how would you say, it? what are the three, four five elements that people can use to make themselves a lot more successful in whatever they decide to, to work on? Well, I, I would say that, and, and, and now being, you know, interacting mostly here with students, uh, undergraduates and graduate students. So I, that's where I have, I think finding basically a teacher who in some ways you can align yourself with and in, in some ways almost selling yourself as being willing to do X, Y, and Z uh, with the intent here of actually aligning now with somebody who knows things that you would want to learn and, and, and basically you want to work with somebody that you really admire. In, in my case, I would say that there's been maybe, you know, three or four or five people that I could point to as having been just extraordinarily uh, influential here and in, in, in sort of helping me, you know, uh, improve whatever I'm doing. Uh, and, and I tell undergraduates when they go to graduate school, you know, the key is find that person that you would love to work with. And then if you can actually convince that person that, you know, th they are going to actually enjoy working with you, the student, uh, then you were sort of established now an important kind of stepping stone here uh, for your career. Okay, very good. Well, Anders, what's the best way for people to learn, pun intended, more? You know, should they get your book, Peak? Should they, uh, you know, I don't know, are you going to open up a, a center for, for peak learning? You know, somewhere like what? How can people follow up and find out more from you? Well, uh, at the moment, you know, I think I'm struggling just to keep up with my email, but but there are uh, some possibilities here. I'm talking to uh, some groups here about the possibility of establishing kind of a a center or or maybe a, a basically a major at a university that would be focused on some of the things that I've been studying. Uh, but that's very, very uh, tentative at this point. So, uh, but maybe in a year or two, uh, I, I would be able to have more details about that. Well, Andesh, thank you so much for coming. It's been a good call. I, I literally learned a lot from you. And I, I love all the puns about learning. If you, you know, I like bad <laughs> jokes. I hope you don't mind. Not at all. And, and thank you so much. Uh, this was a fun uh, interaction here. And if there's anything that people contact you that you feel, you know, please, uh, you know, defer them uh, or refer them to me. And, uh, or if you have some issues that you see, I'd love to hear about them. And I do my best here to respond. All right, that's great. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. 
My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.